0: This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised.
1: Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. We're in the series Survivor Stories, where I share cases of people who were targeted by some very dangerous criminals, but because of their strong will to survive, somehow escaped their fate. In this chapter, we'll hear the story of one woman's incredible story of survival. She didn't know it at the time, but she was selected to be the next victim of one of the world's most prolific serial killers, Theodore Robert Bundy. Ted Bundy, it can be said, was the killer who introduced the term serial killer into our collective consciousness. Rhonda Stapley's story of her encounter with Ted Bundy is chilling. While you may have heard or read numerous accounts of his crimes against women, You have never heard it straight from someone who found herself in the presence of the evil figure that was ted bundy she is one of the few people who lived to tell about not only encountering but being attacked by the infamous serial killer it's a story you will have to hear to believe and in this episode you will hear directly from the survivor herself this is chapter two of survivor stories rhonda stapley the woman who survived ted bundy Rhonda Stapley was a 21-year-old student attending the University of Utah in Salt Lake City in 1974. Her life revolved around school, studying, church, and just living the life of a newly independent adult. She shared an apartment on campus with three roommates and her calico cat. Rhonda was a student in the College of Pharmacy studying to become a pharmacist. She was in her fourth year of a six-year program. Beginning in January of that year, unknown to Rhonda, a string of murders and disappearances of young women had begun in the Pacific Northwest. On January 4th, when New Year's Eve glitter could probably still be found clinging to city streets, a murderer began stalking young women. I will summarize the murders and attacks that have been attributed to Ted Bundy, but this will not be a comprehensive retelling of his life and crimes. There have been many, many books and articles written that go into great detail about these crimes, including Ann Rule's book, The Stranger Beside Me, and Kevin Sullivan's very detailed books about Bundy, The Bundy Murders, A Comprehensive History, and On the Trail of Ted Bundy, just being two of them. I've included links to these resources in the show notes. There are also several podcast episodes dedicated to outlining Ted Bundy's crimes. Episodes by Generation Y, True Crime Garage, and the Serial Killer podcast are but a few. I'd refer you to those resources for in-depth coverage of Bundy's crimes in their entirety. Here's an accounting of the attacks upon young women leading up to the day of Rhonda's encounter with the killer. 18-year-old Karen Sparks, a student at the University of Washington, was the first known victim in 1974. She was bludgeoned in her bed with a crowbar and sexually assaulted. As violent as the attack was, Karen survived after spending 10 days in a coma. However, she could not identify her attacker and suffered permanent damage. On February 1st, Linda Ann Healy, age 21, was attacked in her basement room in Olympia, Washington. She was beaten unconscious, dressed, and then carried away from her home. Her remains would not be found for over a year. The attacks would continue at the rate of about one per month for the next few months. On March 12th, Donna Gail Manson, 19, also went missing from Olympia, Washington. She was a student at Evergreen State College, and left her dormitory to attend an event on campus. She was never seen again. On april seventeenth, Susan Rancourt, eighteen, disappeared from the Central Washington State College campus in Ellensburg. Her remains would be found a year later, along with Linda Ann Healy's scattered on nearby Taylor Mountain. On may sixth, Roberta Kathy Parks, twenty two, disappeared from Oregon State University in Corvallis. Her remains were also found along with the other two women's a year later. Beginning in the summertime, the attacks began to increase in frequency. On June 1st, Brenda Carol Ball, 22, disappeared after leaving a tavern in Burien, Washington. This time, there was a possible suspect cited. She was last seen talking to a brown-haired man in the parking lot of the tavern. The man had his arm in a sling. Brenda's remains were the last to be identified at the Taylor Mountain site. Less than two weeks later, on June 11th, Georgianne Hawkins, 18, disappeared just a few yards from her sorority house on the University of Washington campus in Seattle. She was never found. Witnesses that night recalled seeing a man in the alley behind a dormitory near the sorority house. He was on crutches with a cast on his leg. He seemed to be struggling to carry a briefcase. One woman would report that the man asked her for help carrying the briefcase to his car, which she identified as a light brown Volkswagen Beetle. She declined his request. The deadliest day that summer occurred on July 14th. Two women, Janice Ann Ott, 23, and Denise Marie Naslin, 19, were both abducted and killed four hours apart in broad daylight from the same location, Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah, Washington. Several women at the park that day were approached by the same man, and would later give details to investigators. An attractive young man with brown hair and his left arm in a sling approached them and asked for help unloading a sailboat from a light-colored Volkswagen Beetle. He said his name was Ted. Of the five witnesses, four refused to help. One walked with him towards his car, but when she saw there was no boat in sight, she fled. Three witnesses reported seeing Janice Ott speaking with the same man and then leave the beach with him. Later that afternoon, Denise Naslin left her friends on the beach to make a trip to the restroom and never returned. Both women's remains were found two months later, two miles or just over three kilometers from the state park off of a service road. Police now shared descriptions of their suspect, Ted, and his car. Flyers were distributed throughout the Seattle, Washington area and reported on television newscasts. Perhaps because he'd been identified and needed to change locations, but also because Ted Bundy had been accepted into the University of Utah Law School, he decided to leave the Pacific Northwest in August 1974. The attacks upon young women would begin again a month later, this time in Utah. While investigators were still looking for Ted, their suspect in a string of murders and disappearances in Washington and Oregon, he had fled the state to attend law school in Utah. Ted Bundy's next victim would only be learned about years later when he confessed to the crime. He admitted to picking up a hitchhiker somewhere in Idaho. He raped and strangled her and then dumped her body in a river, which was never found. Her name remains unknown. This murder most likely occurred while he was driving to Salt Lake City from Washington State. Now over 800 miles, or 1,200 kilometers away from his last killing grounds, the suspect, known as Ted, was completely anonymous. Few, if any, citizens of Salt Lake City had ever heard about the string of missing and murdered girls that had taken place in the preceding months in the Pacific Northwest. In Utah, Ted would continue his attacks. On October 2nd, 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox vanished in Holiday, Utah, a suburb just south of Salt Lake City. Later, Bundy would confess to strangling the teenager and burying her remains near Capitol Reef National Park, over 200 miles, 300 kilometers south of Holiday. Her body was never found. Just days later, on October 11, 1974, Rhonda Stapley began her day as normal, walking a class from her apartment building, which was located next to the pharmacy school. It was a Friday and Rhonda had a dentist appointment that afternoon. She owned a car, but as it was her first car, Rhonda fussed over it a bit. She was proud of her shiny new Nova and wanted to keep it in good condition, so she decided not to drive it into the city to the dentist office. Truth be told, she was a bit worried about all the traffic in town and would be greatly upset if she happened to get into a fender bender and mar her perfect little car. So instead of picking up her vehicle for the drive into Salt Lake, she decided to hop on the bus for the short ride to the dentist's office. Things started to go wrong that day, beginning at her dentist appointment. Instead of getting a routine filling, she had an adverse reaction to the anesthesia that was injected into her mouth. The medication ended up in her cheek tissue, which caused a great deal of burning pain. To relieve this, the dentist ended up performing oral surgery, making an incision into the gum line in order to flush out the medication. Rhonda ended up with a mouthful of stitches and a very numb face. Leaving the dentist office, she was feeling no pain, and as it was a nice day, decided to take a short walk through a nearby park. Later that afternoon, as the anesthesia wore off, she began to feel some pain from the surgery and decided it was time to head to the bus stop and for home. She sat waiting for the bus as several minutes went by. The pain in her mouth was increasing now, and she really just wanted to get home. She was just thinking of walking across the park to another bus stop when a tan Volkswagen pulled up and slowly rolled to a stop in front of her. A good-looking young man called to her and asked her where she was headed. She said towards the university. He was going the same way, he said, and he'd be happy to give her a ride. He was cute, friendly, clean-cut, and seemed not at all creepy, just another typical college student. So without thinking anything about it, she accepted the ride. Of course, in 2018, you may be thinking several things at this portion of the story. Like, why did she get in the car with a stranger? Didn't she sense that this person could be a creep, or worse, dangerous? But hindsight is 2020, as we know, and we're looking at it from the perspective of people who have probably followed many true crime cases and are now pretty wary of strangers. We also are looking at it with detailed knowledge about Ted Bundy, and serial killers in general. However, You must remember, in 1974, the name Ted Bundy was completely unknown, and the term serial killer would not even be coined until the 1980s. Also, hitchhiking, which is nothing more than accepting rides from strangers, was commonplace in the 1970s. Many young people, even and maybe especially women, had few concerns about doing so. Finally, you have to also consider the area and environment where Rhonda was living. This was Salt Lake City a city with a very large Mormon population. Rhonda was Mormon and held to the values of her church, not drinking alcohol or even caffeine, remaining chaste until marriage, attending regular church service, and being active in church activities. Her expectation was that she would one day meet and marry a Mormon who shared the same values. This was true of a large percentage of people living in Salt Lake City. So, for a young man to generously offer you a ride home might not be eyed with suspicion. It would be assumed by most that he was probably another college student and very likely a fellow Mormon who was just helping another student out. As a side note, Ted Bundy did purport to be interested in joining the Mormon Church. He began receiving religious lessons from two young Mormon men he attended law school with. He also attended church and eventually committed to being baptized, which he did in 1975. He commented to other church members, that the LDS church had the loveliest girls. However, he was excommunicated by the church after his 1976 kidnapping and assault conviction. The first thing Rhonda noticed entering the Volkswagen was that there was no door handle on the inside of the passenger door. The driver leaned over as she got into the car to close it by grasping the open window. This did not alarm her. College students are often on tight budgets and drive cheap cars that may or may not be in the best condition, she thought. The drive started friendly enough. Rhonda introduced herself as a pharmacy student while he introduced himself as Ted and said he was a first-year law student. He was nicely dressed in dark slacks and a pullover sweater. He looked very much like a typical law student, Rhonda observed. He took a different route than most would take to get to the university, but Rhonda didn't see this as suspicious at first. Ted then said he hoped she didn't mind, but he needed to run a quick errand near the zoo. This detour would take them past the turnoff to go in the direction of the university campus. Rhonda didn't mind the extra few minutes she assumed the errand would take. He seemed perfectly normal and friendly, although not extremely talkative. And besides, he was cute. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world to spend a little extra time in his company, she thought. But a few minutes later, they passed the zoo and Rhonda remarked that she thought he'd said he was going to the zoo. He corrected her, saying he said his errand was near the zoo. They continued up Emigration Canyon Road, a windy and steep road that leads into the sparsely populated hills and the edge of the Wasatch Mountain Range. As they continued on, the road curved and passed a reservoir and into one of the many canyons that dot the mountain range. At this point, Rhonda realized that Ted had no errand he needed to run, but she still wasn't worried. She thought he was probably being flirtatious, and they were taking a nice drive to spend a few minutes together. Maybe he was interested in finding out more about her or just wanted to take a drive on a nice day with a pretty girl. They continued to make small talk about school and the weather as they drove. However, as he continued on and deeper into an unfamiliar canyon, he became quiet. Rhonda was feeling nervous now. She didn't sense danger, but began wondering if he was looking for a spot to stop and make out with her. She wasn't that kind of girl, and this idea made her uncomfortable. If she had to reject his advances, she felt it would be awkward and embarrassing. She began wondering what she should do to avert the situation. She tried to keep up conversation, to show him she was just being friendly, but not flirtatious. But he stopped responding to her attempts at conversation altogether. It became more and more awkward. Finally, Ted pulled off of the road and into a turnout. It was a secluded spot in the woods, and there were picnic tables nearby. He parked the Volkswagen and shut off the engine. He turned to her, and Rhonda was sure he was going to try and kiss her. She was very uncomfortable now. Facing her, he said something in a very matter-of-fact way that was nevertheless shocking. Do you know what? I'm going to kill you. He placed his hands around her throat and began squeezing. Rhonda's first reaction was to think that this must be some kind of weird joke. As his hands around her throat began to cut off her air supply, she automatically began to try and fight him off. Of course, he was too strong. The need for air was causing her to panic. His eyes became menacing, crazy, Just then, he released his grip on her throat, and she gasped for air and began screaming as she kicked and continued to fight. He grabbed her throat again. This time, she lost consciousness. When she came to, she was lying on a picnic table. He must have easily picked up the unconscious girl and carried her to this spot. It must have been jarring to come to in a different place from where you last remembered being. For a second, you might tell yourself it was all just a nightmare. But for Rhonda, the nightmare was just beginning. Ted was standing over her, slapping her in the face, forcing her back into consciousness. He grabbed her face roughly and shook it back and forth. The force caused the stitches in her mouth to rip open and begin to bleed. A quick note. I will continue to outline the attack on Rhonda Stapley by Ted Bundy. I initially debated how much of these brutal details I felt I should share— Rhonda describes the attack in full detail in the book she so bravely wrote, titled, I Survived Ted Bundy, The Attack, Escape, and PTSD That Changed My Life. And I encourage you all to read it, as hearing her experience in her own words is very powerful. But I ultimately decided to describe her attack at the hands of Ted Bundy to you, using her account as a reference. And I have a specific reason for doing so. For me, and probably for many others who follow true crime— Ted Bundy has become somewhat of a mythical figure. There have been books, movies, television shows, and documentaries detailing his crimes. I've seen Twitter and Instagram accounts dedicated to the serial killer. He almost has a cult following. But after reading Rhonda's book, it reaffirmed for me what we used to know about Ted Bundy, that he was a monster and an extremely evil person. I think you will see how very evil he was and someone whose memory shouldn't be romanticized in any way, after you hear the following details. After Bundy forced Rhonda back into consciousness, he grabbed her off the table. Holding her by one arm so she couldn't get away, he began punching her over and over in her stomach until she doubled over and fell to the ground. She pleaded with him to stop. Lying in the dirt, she continued to beg. He stood over her with an intense look of anger, Rhonda describes his face as bright red in his anger. The veins on his neck and forehead bulged out. This was the face of a madman, someone who could kill you as easily as look at you. Rhonda was terrified. He shoved her with his foot, rolling her over to face him as he began to scream at her. "'You don't have the right to whine and cry. You should be thanking me that you're still alive,' he screamed. "'I can kill you any time I want. You should be grateful you're still breathing air.'" He then screamed at her, wanting her to say she was grateful he hadn't killed her. She squeaked out, yes, I'm grateful, and he made her repeat it louder. She would say anything at this point, just wanting the nightmare to end, for the psycho to let her go and spare her life. Bundy then demanded she show him she was grateful and forced her to perform oral sex on him. But it was not sexual gratification he was seeking. He continued to brutalize her, "'exerting power and control over the helpless young woman. "'She was being strangled again, "'just in a different and more humiliating way. "'When he was done, "'he shoved her onto the ground with his foot. "'She tried to back away from him "'by scooting backwards along the ground. "'He then jumped on her, "'sitting on her chest and straddling her. "'He pinned both of her arms to the ground. "'She struggled to breathe, "'twisting beneath him to get out from under his weight. "'He told her to stop struggling.' He said he would let her breathe if she stopped fighting him. He obviously enjoyed seeing her powerless. He was playing a game with her life. He ripped off her shirt and bra and bit her breast. Then, smashing his hand over her nose and mouth, he began suffocating her again. He taunted her, asking her how she wanted to suffocate, how she wanted to die. As she'd start to black out, he let her breathe again. Over and over, he continued to allow her to take a few gulps of air only to begin suffocating her once more. Finally, perhaps tiring of his sick game, he took her by the throat to strangle her into unconsciousness for the fourth time. She came to, lying on the picnic table once again. Bundy again was slapping her awake. It took her longer to come to this time. Good girl, she heard him say through a fog. Don't die on me yet. You wouldn't want to miss the best part. Rhonda had dressed that day in jeans and hiking boots. They were new high-topped boots, and the laces were extra long, so she had wrapped them a few times around the top of the boots before tying them in a tight knot in the front. Bundy now grabbed her by her boots and dragged her to the end of the picnic table and yanked her pants down. He wasn't able to pull them off over her boots. Then he raped her. Rhonda now gave up hope of surviving. She wanted to die, and believed that that was what would happen next. After he raped her, he strangled her once more. This time, she was sure he would end her. Rhonda came to, and now it was dark. She found herself lying face down in the dirt. She looked up to see Bundy standing next to the Volkswagen. The car door was open, and the dome light was on. It was the only light around in the darkness of the wooded turnout. He was standing with his back to her. He seemed to be reaching in to retrieve something from the back seat. Without even thinking, Rhonda jumped up in an automatic fight-or-flight response, terrified out of her wits. She jumped up quickly and turned to run away from the car and her attacker. Her pants were still bunched at her ankles, and as she took just a couple of steps, she tripped and fell. This could have been the tragic end of the story, but it's not. Not knowing what was happening, Rhonda felt herself falling into the darkness. Suddenly, she found herself submerged in ice-cold water. She had fallen off the bank into a fast-moving stream. It quickly carried her away from her attacker, but she was choking on the water and being smashed against rocks as it carried her downstream. Did she escape her attacker just to be drowned? Or would she wash up onto a bank and be found by Bundy, who would certainly finish her off? Suddenly, she stopped moving forward and found herself caught in a tangle of tree branches. She quickly climbed out of the freezing water. She was wet, freezing, and half in shock. Her body hurt all over, and she felt violated, angry, and embarrassed. She didn't even consider trying to run to find a police officer to report the rape and attempted murder. She simply wanted to get home. Her only option, she felt, was to stay under the cover of darkness, away from the roads, Lest Bundy be searching for her. She followed the river downstream, knowing it would lead her into town. It was dark, and she had to stumble over rocks and shrubs. Her fright, anger, and innate survival instinct kept her going. She had to walk four miles or over six kilometers just to get out of the canyon. Once she emerged, she could now head in the direction of a familiar marker that would take her towards home. There was a giant U painted on the side of the hill that overlooked the university. It was illuminated at night, and that became her beacon. She continued on in the direction of the sign. Rhonda walked all night, and it wasn't until daybreak that she made it back to the campus. She didn't want to encounter anyone or talk to anyone about what had happened. She ducked into a bathroom to wash her hands and face and see if she looked somewhat presentable for her walk through the campus to her apartment. She was frightened at seeing her bruised and swollen face. She had cuts and bruises all over her body, and her hair was tangled. At that moment, she realized that she left her backpack in the Volkswagen. Horror washed over her as she realized Ted had her wallet and her identification and home address. Then she remembered that the address listed on her license was her former address. She had since moved. That was a bit of a relief, but she knew he could probably find her if he wanted to. She straightened herself up as best she could, and continued a few blocks to her apartment building. Fortunately, the key to her door somehow still remained in her pants pocket, and she let herself in. It was Saturday morning, and her roommates were out. She quickly went to the bathroom to wash the filth and disgusting remnants of her attacker from her body. She bathed for hours and then slept all night and into the next day. As she thought back to the horror she'd been through just hours earlier— She vowed that no one would ever know what happened to her. She felt stupid, ashamed, angry, and horrified all at the same time. She blamed herself, calling herself stupid for getting into the car with a stranger. She was almost murdered, and it was all her fault, she thought. She was furious that her attacker had randomly picked her to violate in such a way. He played a horrible game with her, seeming to take pleasure in having control over her life or death. Who was this monster who felt he had the right to treat her that way? How could such an evil person exist? Rhonda tried to stay out of sight for the next few weeks as much as possible. She had visible injuries to her face, and she didn't want any questions asked. She cut her classes the following week, but when she returned, she obviously still looked in bad shape because a classmate asked if she'd been in a car accident. She explained it away by saying she'd had dental surgery that she was still recovering from. She began avoiding social gatherings at school and skipping church activities. She wanted to forget about what had happened, and she surely didn't want anyone else to guess, so she began isolating herself. Maybe she thought she could just pretend it never happened. More than anything, she just wanted to get on with the life she'd had before the attack. But just one week later, Ted Bundy struck again. Friday night, October 18th, Melissa Ann Smith, age 17, was visiting a friend who worked at a pizza parlor in her hometown of Midvale, Utah. Midvale was just 12 miles or 14 kilometers south of Salt Lake City. After leaving the restaurant, Melissa headed home to gather some things because she was spending the night at a friend's house. She never made it home. Melissa's father was Midvale's chief of police, and her disappearance quickly made the news. Her body was found in a canyon by a hunter nine days later. On Halloween night, October 31st, 17-year-old Laura Ann Aime went missing from Lehigh, Utah. Ted was moving further south, about 30 miles or 48 kilometers south of Salt Lake City. Her body was found a month later, on Thanksgiving Day, in American Fork Canyon. Both Laura and Melissa were raped, strangled, and bludgeoned. On November 8th, Ted turned up in Murray, Utah, just north of Midvale. He seemed to be traveling up and down State Highway 15, stopping to hunt for victims in small towns. He might have been scared away from Salt Lake after Rhonda's escape. Was he checking the news every day to see if his description had been reported, or did he just stay away from the city in case authorities were looking for him? In either case, it seems, he couldn't or wouldn't stop himself from continuing his murderous urges. In Murray, he posed as a police officer approaching 18-year-old Carol Durant at the Fashion Place Mall. Using the ruse that he was investigating a car break-in identified as her vehicle, he led her out to the parking lot and tricked her into his Volkswagen. He told her he was taking her to the police station to file a report. Instead, he pulled over in a secluded area and attempted to handcuff her. Carol struggled, and Bundy only succeeded in attaching both sides of the handcuff to one of her wrists. She was then able to jump out of the car and escape. She went to the police and quickly reported the fake Officer Roseland as her attacker. Unsatisfied in his plan to murder Carol, Bundy traveled 19 miles, 30 kilometers, north of Murray and abducted and killed 17-year-old Debbie Kent from outside Viewmont High School, where she had gone to pick up her brother after a theater production. Two other women at the school reported being approached by a man that evening who asked them to come outside to identify a car. Both declined. A key was found in the parking lot that later would be determined to fit the handcuffs that Carol Durant still had affixed to her wrist after her near abduction. This, along with Carol's testimony in court, would ultimately lead to Bundy's conviction on kidnapping charges in 1976. After hearing the reports of missing women soon after her own attack, Rhonda's guilt and horror grew. Might the same person who attacked her be responsible for these missing girls? It was too horrible to imagine, and she refused to allow herself to believe it could be true. Then Carol Durant escaped her attacker. After hearing the description Carol gave of the man who abducted her and the description of his car, Rhonda could no longer deny what she had dreaded. This was the same man that had attacked her. She felt horribly guilty and felt that Ted's other victims were all her fault. But she still could not bring herself to go to the police. Later, Rhonda would reason that Carol DeRanche had given all the information about the monster that she herself could have provided to the police. They already had his description, knew that he identified himself as Ted, and they had the description of his car. She had long washed away any physical evidence he might have left behind. She'd thrown her torn and muddy clothes away the day after the attack in a dumpster on the campus. Even her cuts and bruises had since healed. In this way, she convinced herself there was no purpose in coming forward now. Of course, Rhonda was still greatly affected for some time by her attack. She'd wake up in a panic feeling like she couldn't breathe. She looked over her shoulder everywhere she went, thinking he might come back to finish the job. When she heard footsteps behind her as she walked through the campus, she would panic, thinking she was going to be attacked again. She also had fantasies of finding him and killing him. She began to experience depression and stopped attending church. She felt suicidal, and while once she was proud of her accomplishments in school and self-confident as an independent adult— She now felt worthless and like nothing really mattered anymore. She didn't sleep well and could hardly eat. Life was spinning out of her control. Rhonda put what energy she had into her schoolwork and her job in a drugstore pharmacy. Her boss saw that she seemed fatigued a lot of the time. When she admitted that she was having trouble sleeping, he recommended a prescription sleep aid called Placidil. She took it home but didn't use it for a time until she heard about Carol Durant's near abduction and the disappearance of Debbie Kent. She began taking the drug to be able to sleep at all. But it had an added effect on her. She realized it made her feel incredibly calm and even happy. While she was under the effects of Placidil, she could forget all the terrible memories of that awful day. For a time. After Carol Durant escaped him, Ted Bundy must have been more than a little spooked that his capture was imminent. So much so, that after Debbie Kent disappeared the night after Carol's escape, there wasn't another Bundy victim until early the next year, and in another state. Ted Bundy moved on to Colorado, where he claimed three more victims in the first months of 1975, before moving to Idaho, where he is suspected of the murder of a 13-year-old girl, and then to Provo, Utah, where a 15-year-old is counted among his victims. It was in Utah that Bundy was finally arrested. He was pulled over by an alert officer in the early morning hours of August 16, 1975. The officer suspected him of casing a residential neighborhood. As he asked Bundy for his license and registration, the officer noticed that the front passenger seat had been removed from the Volkswagen and placed in the back seat. He asked Bundy to open his trunk, at which time the officer noted the following items. A ski mask, another mask cut out of a pair of pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, rope, and an ice pick, and other items the officer assumed to be burglary tools. Bundy was arrested, and things soon began to unravel for him after his long history of literally getting away with murder. His description and choice of car, a Volkswagen Beetle, came up as suspected in several reports of missing and murdered girls. He'd had several cars along the way, but all of them had been light-colored Volkswagen Beetles. As well, in his apartment, investigators found a guide to Colorado ski resorts with a checkmark by the Wildwood Inn, the hotel where 23-year-old Karen Campbell had gone missing in January. Her body was found the following month. They even found a brochure advertising the Viewmont High School play where Debbie Kent was last seen. Even so, investigators didn't believe they had enough to hold Bundy and released him on his own recognizance. Later, Bundy would say that one item not found in his apartment was a collection of Polaroid pictures he claimed he collected of his victims. He admitted to destroying them after he was released from jail. The following month, one of Bundy's former Volkswagens, one he'd sold to a teenager in Midvale, Utah, was found and swept for evidence. Forensic evidence matching some of the missing and murdered women was found in it. They also found hairs that were microscopically similar to Carol Duranche's In October, Bundy was finally placed in a police lineup, and Carol picked him out immediately as a man who'd called himself Officer Roseland. They couldn't definitively tie him to Debbie Kent's disappearance, but found they had enough to charge him with Carol's kidnapping. Detectives in three states were still working on their investigations, to determine if Bundy could be held responsible for other victims in Utah, Colorado, and Washington. He was tried in late February 1976 and was found guilty of kidnapping and assaulting Carol Duranche and sentenced to a maximum of 15 years in Utah State Prison. In January 1977, he was extradited to Colorado to be tried for the murder of Karen Campbell. On June 7th, he escaped while at the courthouse in Aspen, Colorado, For a preliminary hearing. Six days later, he was found in a stolen car, weak, ragged, and with a sprained ankle from jumping out of the second-story window of the courthouse. Back in jail, he devised his next escape plan. Acting as his own attorney, he filed for a change of venue, which was granted. His trial was moved to Colorado Springs, and on December 30th, after months of planning, he escaped from the local jail. His escape was not discovered until 17 hours later. By that time, he had made it as far away as Chicago. His ultimate destination was Tallahassee, Florida, another college town. It was in Florida, after a series of brutal attacks on women and one 12-year-old girl, that Bundy's bloody trail would end. Perhaps after so many months locked up and unable to fulfill his murderous fantasies, he began to kill as if in a frenzy once he reached the Sunshine State. In one horrible night, He entered the Chi Omega sorority house and killed two women and severely injured two others. He then traveled a few blocks away to a second home and bludgeoned another woman almost to death. She miraculously survived. Finally, on February 9th, Kimberly Ann Leach, age 12, was abducted, raped, and murdered. Three days later, Bundy was arrested near the Alabama state line when he was found driving a stolen Volkswagen Beetle. He tried to evade the officer, but was tackled and arrested. Bundy would stand trial for the Chi Omega murders in Florida. He was convicted of two counts of murder and three counts of attempted murder and sentenced to death. Six months later, he was tried for the murder of Kimberly Leach. He was once again sentenced to death by electrocution. His execution was carried out nine years later, on January 24, 1989. Back in Utah, Rhonda Stapley was following Ted Bundy's case very closely. Of course, she was terrified after learning of his first escape and breathed a sigh of relief when he was soon caught. Then the rug was pulled out from under her again when he escaped, seemingly for good the second time. She, of course, didn't even hear the name Ted Bundy until almost a year to the day of her attack when he was charged with aggravated kidnapping and the attempted homicide of Carol ranch. She was surprised that he had told her his real first name. Of course, she realized, he didn't expect for her to live to tell anyone. Rhonda had since begun seeing a psychologist once her pastor and a classmate confronted her about her use of prescription sleeping pills. They were concerned about her and introduced her to the doctor. She agreed to get counseling with him, but still never revealed that she had been attacked by the Ted Bundy whose name was being spoken all over the news. Rhonda got her Placidil use under control and graduated from college in June of 1976, during the same time that Ted Bundy was beginning his 15-year sentence for kidnapping in Utah State Prison. She began looking for a job, soon finding one as a pharmacy tech at a small mom-and-pop soda fountain and pharmacy. It was one evening while working in the store that she found out about Bundy's escape. Life stood still, and in order to cope with the horror of the situation— and her fear, she went back to taking Placidil, more than she had ever taken before. After one terrible night, when she was afraid she might have taken more than was safe, and a visit from the police, she was referred to a psychologist. Rhonda still struggled to keep her life under control. While she was extremely conscientious and reliable at work, her personal life was still a challenge. She often felt paranoid and was extremely cautious around strangers. Other times, she acted out recklessly, feeling like her life didn't matter. But in early 1979, she met a man named Barry, who was gentle and caring, and they began first talking over the CB radio, for you youngins just Google it, and then by telephone. They began to date and soon fell in love. Rhonda even confided in him that she had been raped, but didn't give any details, and Barry didn't press her for any more. She also told him about the pills, and he didn't judge her, but he did share his concern. Within a few months of meeting, they were married. Two months after their wedding, Ted Bundy was tried for the Chi Omega murders in Florida. Rhonda watched the trial daily, one of the first murder trials to be televised in the country. Bundy again was acting as his own attorney. Dressed in a suit and tie and uncuffed, he looked just like the law student he pretended to be when he first offered her a ride so many years earlier. It had to be frightening to see the man who looked her in the eyes as he tried to choke the life out of her live on television. Even though she wanted to forget about him, she found herself needing to watch the trial. She hoped for an outcome that would prevent him from ever being free again. She followed all the details of the case until the day of his execution in 1989. She listened to all his interviews up until that day as well, wondering if he would mention her. He never did. Rhonda found herself following other true crime cases throughout her life as well. Her own experience caused her to closely monitor other local crime news, like the discovery of serial killer Gary Arthur Bishop, who killed little boys between 1979 and 1983 in Salt Lake City. And of course, the abduction of Elizabeth Smart in Salt Lake was a big news item in 2002. Rhonda found similarities between her and Elizabeth's cases. Both of them were young Mormon girls in Salt Lake City who had been kidnapped and raped. Rhonda and Barry's first child, a girl, was born in 1981. Their second daughter was born in 1984. Barry was a mechanic, and eventually, as Rhonda moved up in her career as a pharmacist and her pay increased, they decided that Barry would stay home with the kids while Rhonda worked. Rhonda lived a contented life with her husband and girls she seemingly put her encounter with Ted Bundy behind her and continued forward, living a good life. This was all she ever wanted, a happy home and a fulfilling career. As the years progressed, she rarely even thought of Ted Bundy, until one day in 2011, when a simple encounter at her workplace would bring it all flooding back. As she continued to move up in her career... Rhonda was recruited at a larger corporate-run pharmacy. Things were going well for the first few years until a new district manager was hired to run the store's pharmacies. Soon, Rhonda's job became more and more stressful. She found herself disagreeing with corporate policy but just seemed to find reasons to nitpick and harass the staff. She found herself butting heads with the new store manager and he began to threaten her with the loss of her job. She was even put on probation and everything she did seemed to be closely monitored, and fault was found for the most insignificant things. She believed the management was trying to push her out of her job, and she was under a great deal of stress due to the situation. She finally decided to place a call to the district manager. She thought it would be an air-clearing conversation, where she could tell her side, and they could begin to work things out without all the hostility. Instead, the district manager began to yell at her. She was shocked, He shouted at her, saying that she didn't have the right to whine to him about being treated unfairly. "'You should be thanking me that you still have a job. I can fire you any time I want. You should be grateful that you're still even employed by this company,' he yelled. Immediately, feelings and memories came flooding back to Rhonda. It was that awful day in October, 37 years earlier, all over again. She could picture Ted Bundy's face, screwed up in a rage as he screamed at her. "'You don't have the right to cry and whine.' You should be thanking me that you're still even alive. You should be grateful that you're still breathing air. Rhonda felt sick. She could feel the pain just as clearly as she had felt it on that day. She couldn't breathe. Her heart pounded. She felt trapped, ashamed, and guilty. All the things Bundy had brought into her life. This was the beginning of another dark period in Rhonda's life. Post-traumatic stress disorder occurs after a person experiences an extreme trauma or life-threatening event. It affects rape survivors, combat veterans, police officers, and other first responders, car crash survivors, and many others. It's a mental health condition that is triggered by trauma. The symptoms can include flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety, and depression. It can cause interpersonal problems as the person suffering from post-traumatic stress may begin to isolate. If the condition is left untreated, it can lead to serious problems such as panic disorder, substance abuse, and or suicidal feelings. Rhonda began to experience some of these symptoms, including nightmares and flashbacks from her attack. She awoke with headaches and nausea and had a frequent feeling of pervasive dread. She became depressed. The symptoms, rather than subsiding over time, increased. She thought about her attack and Ted Bundy frequently now, even though he had been dead for over two decades. She wondered if there was anyone else who'd experienced the terror she had, if there had been any other Bundy survivors. She began searching the internet and amazingly found a woman's blog who also had a story of escaping Bundy. She sent her a message. The woman was in another state and didn't know Rhonda from Adam, so she felt safe sharing the secret she'd kept from everyone else on Earth for almost four decades. They began corresponding. This friendship led to two things that would help Rhonda begin to put her demons behind her. First, she encouraged Rhonda to write about her experience and her pain in a journal. No one would ever have to read it but her, she thought. Writing about her trauma and her feelings about it turned out to be quite healing. Secondly, her friends stressed the importance of finding a therapist to help her deal with her symptoms of depression and post-traumatic stress. She'd now since put a name to what she was experiencing. She began searching for a psychologist in her area, and as fate would have it, she found a familiar name. Dr. David was the young psychologist who had talked with her so many years ago, following her scary experience, after taking too much Placidil. She sent him an email. He responded soon after, and she made an appointment to begin seeing him. He first diagnosed her with PTSD, and she became more educated about the condition and its treatment. He asked her to talk about what trauma she had experienced. She took a deep breath and for the first time sat in a room with someone and told the story of how she had survived Ted Bundy. At this point in the story, I want to introduce you to my special guest, Rhonda Stapley herself. I was so grateful when Rhonda agreed to be interviewed to share with my listeners about the aftermath of her attack by Ted Bundy and the process she went through to begin her healing. So without further ado... Here is my conversation with Rhonda Stapley, the author of I Survived Ted Bundy, The Attack, Escape, and PTSD That Changed My Life. After your attack by Bundy in 1974, you didn't tell anybody what happened to you. In your book, you say that you kept it a secret for 37 years. Why did you make that decision?
0: The reasons are many and they kind of change over time. At the very beginning, immediately after the assault, I was embarrassed and I felt stupid for having let myself get into such a dangerous situation. I was afraid that people would judge me. I could imagine people pointing at me and saying, that's that girl that was raped. Rape victims were kind of treated a little bit differently. I was afraid that people that knew me would treat me strange and it would be just weird. I felt like I was dirty and ruined. In our our church, I was a very religious young lady. Um, Our church's teachings at that time, they're kind of coming around changing a little bit now, but at that time it was taught that the most important thing a young woman can have is her virtue. And if it comes to a choice of giving up your life or your virtue, it's better to die. And I had lived, and so I had that guilt um, in addition to the feelings of embarrassment and shame and lonesomeness and fear and all those other feelings that get mixed up after an assault has happened. A little bit later, I felt like if I told my family, my mom would make me drop out of school and come home, and I felt guilty for not telling, especially after other bodies started being found in canyons. I felt like maybe it was my fault, and I felt that kind of guilt. But by then, they, the police already had a description of him and his car, and I didn't know what else I could offer that would help an investigation, and I just thought that all those bad things that were going to happen, like you know, people would shun me and treat me differently and disrespect me, and, and all of those kind of feelings made me just want to keep the secret forever. And mm-hmm. then even later, you know, after he was arrested and in jail and so forth, then the reasons not to tell were because... It didn't seem important. He'd been arrested, and it wasn't important to me that people knew. And if they did, they still might judge me, or worse, they might not believe me. Like, yeah, that guy they put in jail, that Ted Bundy, he assaulted me. And they would say, yeah, right, Mm -hmm. attention seeker. So, So I just decided to promise myself never to tell anybody, and I kept that promise.
1: That's quite a bit to have to deal with at such a young age, all of those things that were kind of swirling around in your mind of what could have happened and how you would be perceived. One thing you just said there really kind of leaps out at me that you kind of believed at that time that it would be better to be dead than to say that that happened to me and I lived.
0: Yeah, that's kind of true. You know, the, the teachings in the church were that your worth and your of your whole soul depended on being virtuous and pure, and that's the most important thing that a young woman could have. And if you lost that, you might as well lose your life. And it's probably better to give up your life than to give up your, your chastity and your virtue. Oh, that's, that's
1: pretty intense, I would imagine, to have to think about how do, I, how do I square that with being a survivor, actually survive this, which is miraculous and, and a very good thing. But then there's that other kind of shadow kind of hanging over it about being a survivor, And I assume that there's other people that have that thought as well.
0: Yeah, it's kind of called survivor's guilt. Mm. You feel guilty for surviving. You know, you're glad you lived and you're glad you're alive, but you're kind of wondering why and and why me? You know, Bundy killed so many young women. Why did I manage to not get killed? If for some reason God was looking out for me, why didn't he look out for them? You know, I'm not any different than all those other victims. And why would he let me live? And it kind of made me question my faith and, And God and religion and life. When you finally
1: did decide to tell someone, what made you take that step? Because it seemed like with all of that, that was a huge step for you.
0: It was. And by then, you know, 37 years later, I thought that I had handled it well. I, you know, put it away somewhere and it was shoved down so far that I hardly ever thought about Ted Bundy. Um, I was married, had family, you know, raised two daughters, active in the church and active in the community. Had a really good career as a pharmacist have a small business of my own. I thought I had life pretty much under control and going really well until the the turning point was when when the symptoms of PTSD started. And that happened to be the 37 years uh, after an incident with a job. In trying to get rid of the PTSD symptoms, trying to figure out how do I make myself feel better because I was feeling really horrible, Mm -hmm. I found out that the Most of the things that I was reading were saying the best way is to talk about it. You need to talk about it and express those feelings and those emotions to somebody. And I didn't think that I could talk about them to anybody, but that's when I decided to start looking for someone to talk to.
1: You talked about the symptoms that you started to experience. Could you tell us a little bit about those symptoms? What did you experience and how did you kind of know that this is different from what I'd been going through before? This is another level or something else that I haven't experienced.
0: Yeah, the, the very first thing, you know, the, the boss yelled at me, and immediately I just felt like like crying, and I couldn't stop. And, you know, I'm a professional pharmacist, and crying at the boss is like I'm way overreacting. And, you know, even for weeks after, I couldn't stop crying, and I was thinking I am just so overreacting to this. People get yelled at at work all the time. People get fired. I wasn't fired. I just was kind of yelled at, and I shouldn't be crying about it, and I shouldn't be feeling so angry as feeling just just so tearful and so angry and so hurt and so singled out. And I I think that's the part that related kind of to Bundy was that I felt like I was chosen at random to be yelled at by the boss. You know, everybody else was doing the same thing I was doing, but I was the one that was chosen kind of like Bundy kind of picked me at random. I don't really know the psychological reasoning behind that, but I think that that had a lot to do with, with my symptoms. I was having nightmares and panic attacks and, And the nightmares were all related to that incident all those years ago. And so I kind of knew that it had to be PTSD.
1: And had you heard about PTSD before this? Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, you hear about it. You know, you kind of think it has a lot to do with with soldiers coming back from the war who've watched their buddies get killed and stuff. And and you know that, you know, people in earthquakes, people who survive airplane crashes and car crashes and things, they are all subject to PTSD, just if you think your life is in danger— triggers that part of your brain that can hold on to that fear.
1: Yeah, because we have to remember that the T stands for trauma, right? So it could be yeah. any kind of trauma. But it continued, you said. In that moment, you felt very angry. You felt very upset. You were crying. But it did it continue to happen? Is that
0: what you're saying? Yeah, it continued to happen. And I was angry at every little thing. You know, if my husband would feed the dog and leave the dog food can on the counter, oh, that was terrible. <sighs> <laughs> the garbage is right there, you know, he's he's left the dog food can on the counter and I just throw them away every day for our whole married life we've had pets. Mm-hmm. But for some reason now it just made me really really angry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We'd have fights about little silly things like you didn't take the garbage out. I knew you wasn't going to take the garbage out. Yeah. Started affecting all other areas of my life. So you think it was just the anger coming out? Is that part of it? Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure it
1: was the anger. You mentioned uh, in your book about when you would ride in a car, feeling anxious, the way your husband was driving, or something like that, and you kind of you saw that as again another overreaction. Um,
0: yes, yeah, another overreaction, and I think that probably my my fear of cars was maybe because in the car was the first time that I started to feel panic and fear. Mm-hmm. So when I get in cars, I feel that anxiety and and panic, even if Bundy's not there and we're not heading up a canyon.
1: But they call those triggers, right? There's certain things that might trigger you because it's a either memory or something similar. Like you write in your book about the conversation with your boss or the way that he came at you somehow triggered a memory or maybe not even consciously, but a memory of having felt that way before um, or having yeah. something like that similar said to you before. Um, And then later on realizing that that was probably during the attack, like how many years later, over 30 years later, right? Um, Right, yeah. And still the reaction almost is vivid. That is something that people talk about when they talk about dealing with post-traumatic stress is that, you know, it's an overreaction, but it feels like you're in that moment again. You're reacting to it at that level,
0: yeah. It doesn't feel like a normal kind of memory. Mm-hmm. You know, you can remember falling down in the grade school parking lot and hurting your knee really bad. It's not that kind of a memory. It's like you're right there and you can feel the pain and you can you know, taste the blood and you can smell the smells. And yeah. It's like too real. And there's another part of PTSD that a lot of people experience that's a like a, a supercharged startle reflex. Somebody walks up behind you or says something loud or there's a you know, they talk about soldiers will hear bangs and they'll, they'll think of that they're back in the war and those are machine guns going off. Mm-hmm. And I didn't have that, but I have the startle if somebody walks up behind me. Mm-hmm. And I also have a feeling of unsurety. I'm not sure of myself. I like to be in control, so I like to be the driver. And if I'm driving and I'm going to change lanes, you check traffic and you check traffic. Mm-hmm. You signal and you check traffic again and everything is perfectly safe. You're good to go but I still kind of cringe when I go over there thinking I'm going to (laughs) die. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. It's like this hyper, like you said, hyper sensitivity to things.
0: Yeah. And so, so now what I have to do is, is tell myself you're not going to die because you checked and it's safe and you checked again and it's safe and it's still safe and you're going to be fine. Just go over there and change the lane. So what is it that helped
1: you? What are the things or the steps that you took to start healing a little bit or changing those reactions?
0: Well, the first step that I took was I'd read that you need to kind of write it down and write out what happened, and that will help you to express it. And I thought that maybe if I did that, nobody would have to read it. I could still be a secret, but I could express those feelings. And so I started kind of journaling and writing it down. That's what turned into the book. That's probably the one thing that helped me the most. But I also found another Bundy survivor I could talk to that was far away from me, and she didn't know anybody that I knew, and she couldn't. You know, tell the people at my work or tell my family or anybody if things went south we could just quit talking to each other and that helped a lot and she encouraged me to get a, a psychologist and talk to him and he taught me a whole bunch of coping techniques so that i could stop a panic attack when it's starting
1: finding another survivor that had to be i mean who else in the world could understand what you'd been through unfortunately most didn't survive So it's not a big club there.
0: Um, and There's not a club. There's no support group for Ted Bundy Survivors. Right,
1: yeah. (laughs) Did that feel like, okay, this is a blessing that dropped in my lap, that I found somebody who can understand and maybe give me some advice of what to do?
0: Yes, all all along my healing path, it just seemed like things started to kind of click into shape, kind of blessed that way.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it sounds like it, because that, that's amazing to, the, to find another person that can relate to what you went through. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your life soon after surviving the attack. Like, what did you do to kind of just keep going from day to day afterwards, seeing as nobody knew and there was really no one to talk to about it? How did you get through the first few months or, or so after the attack?
0: Well I didn't want anybody to know and so I covered up my bruises and I missed a couple of classes and I started kind of dropping out of social events and dropping out of church and not doing things with my friends and just kind of isolating myself a lot. I think a lot of victims do isolate. I felt worthless and like I didn't belong around other people. And somehow I managed to get that kind of under control. Part of the part of the thing was that I even started self-medicating because that would help me to be feel numb. And then I wouldn't allow myself to think of thoughts of Bundy or thoughts of fear or thoughts of cold water or any kind of thoughts that would trigger memories back then. I was just trying to forget about the whole thing. I thought if I forgot about it and just moved on with my life, that would be the best way to handle it. Mm. Turned out it wasn't really handling it. It was just avoiding it. Right. (laughs) Which is like the reason that PTSD pops up later
1: it was just basically one foot in front of the other every day it sounds like
0: yeah kind of... for for probably the first several three or four years after that and then you know I was able to kind of get my life back together and I married and started a family and got my career going and had a really normal pretty much boring life <laughs> lived happily happily ever after for the next 37 years
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> i know as 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 women especially we put a lot of energy into family and nurturing our kids and taking care of our you know, spouses and our jobs and everything else. Um, and so sometimes that kind of distracts us from other things and we find a way to just you know, keep going and really focus on the positive things. But you're right. I feel like if there is something that hasn't really been dealt with, surprise, one day it'll just pop up and then we have to go back and and deal with things at least that's been my experience and other people that I know that their experience that that happens there's so much we can do to keep going and it's great because you know you you have your life it didn't stop it didn't halt in any way where some people it might you know they might get too involved in drugs or whatever it is that they do to numb, like you said, and then really not move forward. But that didn't happen for you. You continue to... Yeah, I I
0: insisted on moving forward.
1: (laughs) Force of will. Force of will, Mm -hmm. right. Power power on. Yeah, power on. Yeah. Some of us are really good at doing that, powering on. One of the things that intrigued me about what you wrote in your book is that you followed the Bundy case. So a couple of obvious reasons, because... Once they identified him, he got arrested, he's captured. But then there was a couple of, let's call glitches when he escaped. I assume that that started with just wanting to know that he's locked up. Is that the reason why you followed that case so closely?
0: Yeah, because I was, I was so directly involved in it, I followed all of that case really closely. I also followed a lot of other cases. Anytime there were murders in our neighborhood or serious crimes, I paid attention to all that. So I followed a lot of crimes and, and part of the reason, you know, I've always wondered if people who who read true crime and follow true crime and watch it on TV, if a lot of them are victims themselves or NOAA victims, because um, it does seem to suck you into that genre from my personal reasons, probably because it makes me feel not so alone. You know, I'm not the only one that was raped. Look at all these stories on TV. I'm not alone. Mm-hmm. And that's a really big thing because loneliness is such a big part of post-traumatic stress. And being alone is a part of secret keeping. You feel like you can't share with anybody and you have to kind of be guarded. And And just knowing that other people are going through the same kind of things makes you not feel so alone. So one
1: of the things I know that people who do follow true crime for whatever reason is that other people, maybe in their family or their friends, don't quite Get why you'd want to, why you want to delve into that kind of. It's it's it could be kind of dark, right? A dark subject. What what did your family think? I imagine you're watching these things on television or reading books or something. Did they ever ask you like, why why are you so interested in that? Or do they look at you funny? We always kind of wonder about that. People like,
0: okay, why are you reading all that? Yeah, my my kids always thought I was a little bit creepy because I knew all the details about all the creepy stuff that happened. (laughs) And now there's
1: a real big creepy club because there's a lot of people who, you know, follow true crime. We, we've we found that out through everything that has happened in the media, true crime documentaries and podcasts and everything in the last, you know, two, three, four years. And uh, so we all feel a little bit more like, oh, we finally have a community of people who understand, you know, our interest in this. And it's, it makes us feel like, okay, maybe we're not so weird. <laughs> maybe we're okay. So yeah, um. exactly. <laughs> so that's interesting. I guess I just wanted to just say, how are you doing today? Like, what's what's Rhonda's life like now?
0: <clears throat> well, I still have some of the PTSD symptoms, but most of them I'm able to manage. I hardly ever have nightmares anymore or flashbacks. I still have that that startle reflex, and I still have those fear of changing lanes when I'm driving. And I still have that control that I want to be the driver, even if I don't trust myself. I still <laughs> want to be the driver and be in control. Basically, my life is good. I've quit working for that boss
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I'm concentrating on my small business that I have it used to be a side business to my pharmacy job. And now I'm concentrating on that and life is good.
1: That sounds really, really great. I'm glad to hear that. What would you say to listeners who are dealing with a traumatic event of their own? What what kind of advice would you give them?
0: Well, I think that if if we're talking about you know, there's all kinds of traumas. If we're talking about rape and sexual uh, assault and so forth, the main thing is to think of it, it's not your fault. People will say, why were you out late at night? Or why did you take a ride with that guy? Or what were you wearing? or, But it's, it's not the victim's fault. It's never, ever the victim's fault. And it's not just, just sexual assault victims that do the self-blaming, people who are survivors of earthquakes or avalanches or whatever can still manage to let their mind take them to that place where they're wondering if only I had done this differently or what if I had done that instead or I wish this would have happened and 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 that's kind of a a self-blaming thing Mm -hmm. and the second thing that I would uh, encourage people is to talk about it find somebody to share it with if it's a best friend or a coworker or a clergyman or a psychologist. Psychologists are great because they are bound to keep your secret. They can't tell anybody (laughs) and to talk about it. And then there's the, the flip side too is if you're the person that a friend approaches you and they have chosen you to be the person that they can confide in, it's important that you, first of all, believe them. Don't say, Oh no, he would never do that. I know him and he's a nice guy. He would never do that. And then don't blame them. Don't ask them, what were you doing out at night? Or why would you have worn those clothes? Or, you know, whatever. Why were you drinking? You should know that's a dangerous thing to do. Believe them and don't be judgmental and keep their confidence.
1: Yeah, it's great advice for people because somebody does approach you and want to talk about something like that. We don't always know how to react. We don't always know what to say, but at least that gives you some idea of maybe what not to say. Um, What would you say would be the best
0: response? I'm not really sure there really is a best response, but um, avoiding the negative responses is the main thing mm-hmm. and listen and just be there. Maybe the response would be, what would you like me to do now? Because mm-hmm. maybe, maybe they're in a place where they want somebody to help them report it to the police or help them see a doctor or help them with whatever they need to be doing, you can't say, Come on, I'm taking you to the hospital. We're gonna check this out right now, to so let it be their idea.
1: Because you don't wanna take more of their power away. They've already just maybe experienced that feeling powerless. Yeah. And then if you come and in, swoop in and try to take over, you're basically taking them taking their power away again and that may re traumatize. So like I like that response is to say, what would you what would you like me to do? How can I help you?
0: Yeah, I'm sorry that happened to you. Mm-hmm. What would you like me to do?
1: Yeah. That sounds that sounds really helpful. Um, thank you for that. So I just want to thank you so much for coming on. And where can listeners find you?
0: I can be found. Uh, my name is Rhonda Stapley, and I'm on Facebook. If you buy my book, my contact information is listed on the very last page. So you can have my email and and contact me personally if you want to. Uh, my book is available on Amazon. You can either find it by looking up Rhonda Stapley, or you can look up by the title. The title is I Survived Ted Bundy.
1: I want to thank Rhonda Stapley for being on the show and for sharing her journey with my listeners. She gave us some great advice and insight on how to help friends and loved ones who have dealt with a trauma of their own. If you have experienced trauma and need help or feel you are experiencing symptoms of post traumatic stress, please reach out for help. You can get information online at ptsd.va.gov, where there is a list of websites and organizations worldwide that you can reach for answers and referrals. That will do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. Once again, I want to thank my guest, Rhonda Stapley. I've included a link to her book, I Survived Ted Bundy, The Attack, Escape, and PTSD That Changed My Life, which you can find on Amazon. It's a powerful book, and I highly recommend it to read all the details of Rhonda's story. If you'd like to reach Rhonda, you can find her on Facebook at Rhonda Stapley, That's R-H-O-N-D-A-S-T-A-P-L-E-Y. Rhonda made mention in the interview that there are those who have doubted her story, and I have a couple of points to make about that. As you know, I do a lot of research for each episode, and this one was no different. I went through the timeline of Ted Bundy's crimes, mapped out his journey through several states, and could see that the time, place, and circumstances that Rhonda describes when she was attacked perfectly fit the timeline. As well, you can say I cut my true crime teeth on the Bundy case and over the years have read just about everything there is out there about him and his crimes. The way she describes what happened to her is pretty close to textbook Bundy MO. There are also details in the book that will provide more of this information, and I encourage you to read it. Finally, as she mentioned, some say that she probably just made up the story and wrote the book for publicity, but you have to think about that for a moment. Who would want to gain recognition as someone who was brutalized and raped? That's completely the opposite of what most rape victims want, I would think. And the timing doesn't make much sense. If she did want 15 minutes of fame, as some have accused, wouldn't she have come out with the story much earlier? Say, when Bundy was first caught, or when his murder trial was being televised, or right after his execution? That, I think, would be the time you'd get the most attention. Not 20-plus years after he'd already been put to death. Anyway, it's just something to think about. I know listeners of Once Upon a Crime are thoughtful and kind, especially to victims and survivors. So I encourage you to tell her you heard her interview and say something nice. If you didn't know, that's the new hashtag I and my fellow podcasters have been using to encourage and support one another. This was started by the wonderful and talented Erin Mankey from Lore, so let's keep that going. We can all help make this a kinder world. Don't forget to use the hashtag Say Something Nice. Thanks. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. Until next time, be good to one another.